Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. It's time for today's Lucky Land horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. June is busting out all over, all over the mountains and the bears, the knockers and the jeebas and the jeebas and the beebas and the buns and gun and the bears. Because it's June, 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 just because it's June, June, June. Uh, Miss Uggams, Oh, I thought that was I thought that was pretty good. Me too. You know what else is good? I, thought I nailed it. I the, thought you the did lyrics. Too. I really thought I did. It has to be good. Yeah. Uh, being one, we know what else is good, Kevin. What? Being one of our Patreon Ooh. subscribers. Now, how does one do that? Rob? Well, you head on over to Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com, and search for Behind the Curtain: Broadway's Living Legends, and set a monthly donation. Even a dollar a month helps us. Your contributions help us continue doing what we are doing and bring the legend stories to your ears. Yep. All right. Time to go cast my Tony ballot. You're voting for me, right? Sure. Hi, I'm Rob Schneider. And I'm Kevin David Thomas. And this is Behind the Curtain, Broadway's Living Legends. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Broadway Curtain and make sure to join our Facebook page at Behind the Curtain, Broadway's Living Legends. And follow us on Instagram at Broadway Curtain Podcast. Plus, you can always listen to our podcasts on Broadway World and Stitcher. Today's guest created one of the musical theater's most recognizable franchises. Yes, a franchise. And to think it all started with a greeting card, a wimple, and a dream. <laughs> our guest has kept audio and stitches for over 30 years with his little story about the five surviving little sisters of Hoboken and their antics to keep a steeple over their head and song in their heart. That was Nonsense, the second longest-running off-Broadway musical in history. Then, here we go, there was Nonsense 2, The Second Coming, Sister Amnesia's Country Western Nonsense Jamboree, Nuncrackers, The Nonsense Christmas Musical, Meshuggah Nuns, <laughs> I like that one, Nonsensations, The Regus Review, Nonset Boulevard, plus Nonsense Amen, Nonsense The Mega Musical Version, and Sister Robert Ann's Cabaret Class. Oh my gosh, to tell us what it was like to work with such legends as Rue McClanahan, Kate Ballard, Alice Ghostly, Georgette Engel, Mimi Eines, Vicki Lawrence, and so many more. Here is the patron saint of Broadway, Dan Goggin. <laughs> Dan, how are you? I am very, very well, thank you. So we are you. so honored to have you with us yeah. today. Oh, thank you. I'm, I'm happy to be here. Yeah. This is fun. Yeah. Oh, good. Okay, Dan, we, ha- we have to ask, what was your upbringing like? Were you a, uh, a student of the of the Catholic schools and parochial schools? Yeah, I, I went to Catholic school. Um, the nuns were always very, very fascinating to me. Mm. And uh, I think that, of course, back then everybody was traditional. 
and um, the uh, the actual five characters in the original nonsense are based on personalities of five nuns who taught me. And tell this yeah. is like yeah. from elementary school or yeah. high school? From yeah, elementary, elementary school. school. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. The the uh, in fact uh, when we opened the show. I think probably at least four of them were, were still living, uh-huh. and they loved it. Oh, they came! They, they came to see it. They, yeah, they were very they were very popular. And uh, when we when we made the first television special, um, the mother the the old nun who said the blessing uh, before well we get into the story, but before yeah. all the sisters. Um, <laughs> was the real Mother Superior, Sister Vincent de Paul, and she was 92 years old. Oh, and uh, I went, we went to the mother house and said, do you want to, I said, do you want to be in a movie? She said, yes, I want to be in a movie. <laughs> and, uh, and, you, and we, and we got her in the movie. Her. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and the real Sister Amnesia, which everybody thinks I made up, the nun who lost her memory, um, was Sister Mary Joel, <laughs> My third grade teacher, who was so pretty, we thought she was Miss America before she became a nun. And she would get, like, she'd get to the blackboard and she'd say, um, I know how to make a written bee, but with a, with a printed, does a printed bee go this way or does it go this way? And we'd say, No, it goes this way. And, um, and she would tell us these stories that, that she lived on a ranch and she had these horses and everything. And, Many years later, when I would be home in Michigan, which where I grew up, mm-hmm. I'd stop by the mother house and talk to the older sisters, and um, I would tell them about Sister Mary Joel, and they said, "Oh, she lived in a whole fantasy world." <laughs> <laughs> so she was she was very much like that character. Bless Sister Mary Joel. <laughs> yes, and we loved her. <laughs> So when you were when you were in in Catholic school, did you have any ideas of you know becoming a writer at some point? What did you think you were going to do? I was going to be a teaching brother, okay. a teaching brother, a teaching brother, and I actually went into the seminary in tenth grade. Mm-hmm. But at the time, well, you could go in so early. Yeah, you could go in after eighth grade. Oh that in the old days, that's what yeah. you did. Your parents must have been ecstatic. Yeah, they were horrified. Oh, really? No, actually, what it was. They felt that I was too young to do it, and and they were right in that. I grew up in this small town called Alma in Michigan. In Michigan, little college town, uh-huh. and when I and my whole high school had I think six hundred people in it. When I went to the seminary, there were twelve hundred seminarians in at that time, oh my and it was enormous. And it was so overwhelming to me. I really just couldn't deal with it. And so I went back. And uh, then I was going to go back after high school. And um, Sister Vincent DePaul, the, the nun uh, who was in the show, yeah. said to me, I think you shouldn't go back right away. Because I said, she said, uh, I think you should continue with your music. Because I used to play the organ all the time. Oh, yeah. Uh, and... I had, had studied some voice and stuff up at the college. I was graving the little college town because for the professors to make extra money, they'd teach kids on the weekend Classic. and all that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And uh, so we would do that. And she said, I think you should you know, continue with your music. Then when you go in, you'll really have something to offer. And 
so that yeah that kind of that kind of changed the the, the track and um, I came to Manhattan School of Music in New York. Um, That's a big change. That, that, yes, from a little town. But by then, um, you know, I was I was better adjusted to the whole the whole idea. Had you been to New York before then? No. So you just jumping in? Yeah, I always wanted to live here. Uh, I, I loved big cities. Uh, my cousins lived in Detroit, okay. and I was always our thrill to be able to go to Detroit. And the funny thing was they were always thrilled to be able to come to Alma, <laughs> where we could just ride bikes anywhere and go down and catch turtles in the river and all that stuff, you know. Yeah. Uh, but I, I always loved the idea of the big city and the, and the energy. And uh, so I ended up at, at Manhattan. And did you have an interest in, I mean, what kind of music were you listening to while you were growing up? Or, or did you have an interest in theater, theater music yet, or was it more classical or sacred music? I'm sure no, I, I didn't. I, I really knew very little about theater. Okay. Um, we had a, um, what did they used to call it? The community concerts at oh. the school where, like, we had a duo piano team come. Nice. Like there'd be four events, and one year the Vienna Boys Choir came. Oh, wow. But when I was in 11th grade, the choir teacher, who was really very knowledgeable, discovered that I was a countertenor. <laughs> and he said, I think you should really work on this. So when um, I went to Manhattan, uh, I auditioned as countertenor. That's, that's how I got in. And it was all going to be about voice and singing, and it was mostly classical stuff. Because um, countertenors all of a sudden have come into vogue again, and they're all over the place. It's true. Yeah. But at the time, there were only like, there was Russell Oberlin and maybe one other one. And uh, so it was, it was kind of considered special. And just to show, this, this always cracks me up, I tell people how, how naive I was when I was at home in Michigan. When they discovered this, and I started studying at the college, um, they were talking about how truly unique this is. And, you know, there's only one or two and all this. And I thought, well, I should come to New York for the summer and, and you know, entertain somewhere. Because, obviously, I was very unique and very rare and special. And I had known that there was a couple of rooms in the Waldorf Astoria so I wrote a letter to the Waldorf Astoria saying that, you know, I was this very unique, fantastic countertenor that no one had ever heard of. And obviously they would want me there to perform all summer. And, you know, I never heard back. <laughs> They're lost. They're so, lost. No, I'm so <laughs> To this day, I all I can think of is what they must have thought when they opened that letter that that this was you know that, right. that somebody wrote this letter thinking that they were actually going to be calling you know and uh, and I was going to be be working there in the Empire Room or some, <laughs> somewhere, you know. Yes, exactly. Yes, and I thought they were going to be thrilled. That takes what my people call chutzpah. Yes. So I, I love that. Yes. I love that. Yeah. And I I think it was uh, well, it was more just stupid naivete, but either way, I did it. <laughs> and uh, um, but then when I when I finally got to New York. Um, I studied, I was in Manhattan for the year, 
And then at the end of that year, I went back home. And uh, my mom said, you know, I think you're going to be pretty bored in Elma all summer, waiting to go back. She said, why don't you take a couple of classes at University of Michigan? So I went there for the summer, and I had a voice teacher there who was really great. And um, so at the end of the summer, I decided instead of going back to Manhattan, I would stay at Michigan. Um, the, the pressure at Manhattan, I don't know how it is now, but um, was incredible mm. if you were good because they were competing with people at the Met, you know. Yeah. Right. And so it was um, very, very serious, strict. They, and they would not teach theater songs there. Oh, right. There, there was, was all classes. One, yeah, one teacher who would teach theater songs um, a, after class. Right. Um, and there was a girl in my class who was in a Broadway show and she was looked down on. And because, uh, you know, way back then, yeah. I think it's probably changed some now. But um, so I liked it so much in Michigan, but at the end of the first year, at the end of the first semester of the full year in Michigan, um, my coaches came to me and they said, we realize that you don't really work very hard <laughs> unless there's a reason. <laughs> you know, you just don't seem to have any interest in just learning for the hell of it. <laughs> and, and we think you should go to New York and try to get a job. And if you don't, come back. And I decided that was the perfect thing to do. And a friend of mine who was also at University of Michigan was going to be moving to New York uh, at that same time. And my parents were horrified because my dad was a trial lawyer and my mom was a school teacher. And back then, every goal was to have their kid in college. That's right, you get a degree. Yeah, and I had been salutatory in my high school. And so I got in, it was like, you know, how could you do this? But they said, you know, they didn't stop me, but they said, we're not paying for this. Mm -hmm. They said, if you want to go, you know, you can try it. If you want to come back to school, we'll pay for your school. And, and so I said, no, I want to try it. So I came to New York, and for like, I guess maybe three months, I had a temporary job typing huh? with Alston's. Uh -huh. And uh, um, then, it's, it's funny, my, my whole life is like stars have shined on me. Um, I had bought a backstage, and I looked in it, and I didn't see anything. And I put it in the trash. And a friend of mine was over. He said, oh, are you throwing that out? And I said, yeah. And he said, can I have it? The next day, he called me. He said, you know, they're looking for a countertenor in here, which I didn't see. Ding, ding. And, and he said, it's a new Broadway show. It was the play Luther by John Osborne right. with Albert Finney. Yeah, I was going to say starring Albert Finney. Yeah. And, and, uh, you know, back then, it's funny because I, I would never have the nerve to do this now, but back then it said, you know, it was David Merrick, and so I just called David Merrick's office, and I said, I see you're looking for a countertenor, and I'm a countertenor, and blah, 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 and the casting lady said, oh, she said, you know, I think it's all cast. And then she said, no, wait a minute. She said, they're having callbacks today. If you want to come in, come in at 2 o'clock. So I said, okay. So I came in at 2 o'clock, and back then, there were no casting directors or anything. Right. You know, the, yeah. it was Tony Richardson and all those who they were all there. So I went in, and I said, I can sing 
um, a little Italian art song, or I can sing Look to the Rainbow. Mm -hmm. And they said, sing the little Italian art song, which I did. And the next day, I called to see what happened. They said, oh, we were trying to reach you. You got the job. So like that. <laughs> you're, you're on Broadway, just like that. Yeah. 19 years old, and of course, at the time, I realized it was because I was so fan fantastic. Yeah. How could I not be on Broadway? And, uh, <laughs> right. and I had never been on a stage in a show. I never did a play or anything. I knew really nothing about it. Right. And, and here I was in this, in this Broadway show, and um, I played like 19 parts, and and, but they had four of us who sang through the show, doing like different background sounds and all that kind of thing. And, and, and that's how it got started. And then after that, I suddenly realized it was not as easy as it looked. <laughs> of course. But I mean, it was an amazing experience. So you get back into the city, and then what happens next? Yeah, do you keep auditioning for stuff? Do you keep looking I for counter-tenor jobs? I, no, I, I, counter jobs? No, I was, I, I looked for some of that. I would audition also, like, you know, with my lower voice. Um, but, you know, I didn't dance. I didn't really act. And, but there was a guy in the show with me, one of the singers, and he and I started singing together while the show was on the road, oh. doing like folk stuff. Is this the Saxons? Yeah. Okay. And and uh, he sang baritone, and I sang countertenor. And uh, so when the thing was over, we thought maybe we could we could do something with it. And we got a harpsichord, and I played the harpsichord, which later became an electric harpsichord. We had an electric harpsichord. I didn't even know such a thing existed, yeah, right. to be honest. Ball, Baldwin pianos had this really cool electric harpsichord. And, uh, awesome. and you could make different sounds with it. And, that. and so we toured for five years as, as this sort of comedy folk duo spoofing countertenor stuff and, 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 and doing some pretty songs, too. And we made a couple albums and that. But at, at that time, the people really seemed to enjoy it. But you had, you, we were at the end of that folk era. Mm -hmm. It was yeah. like just when, you know, Peter, Paul, and Mary and all those were finally just coming out. It was moving on to something new. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, we had fairly decent jobs for five years, but not, not huge. And then... Um, at, that, at that point, we were, we were tired of being on the road a lot, and we wanted to come into New York, but all producers and everybody said, well, you can't come in unless you have original material. Oh. And my friend Bob Lorick uh, was an actor who sort of, I think, toyed with writing, and we were talking one day, and, and he said, well, let's write something and see if we can get it on. And that turned out to be the off-Broadway show Hark, oh. which opened in 1972 at the Mercer Arts Center, which was an incredible place. It was like the off-Broadway's uh, off Lincoln Center. What was it, uh, well, what was it about? Hark, it, it exclamation was, point, yeah, right? Yes, yes, uh, and exactly. Um, it was really just kind of slices of life. Mm -hmm. But the, the critics seemed to love it, and, and one critic said they're, they're on the verge of a new kind of theater 
being made, you know. And it was just like looking into different people's lives, mm -hmm. kind of um, as as life went on, you know. Right. And um, but the people the people really enjoyed it. It was basically a review. Okay, so little vignettes. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so you you do hark, and then what's next for you? Then Bob and I started writing stuff, mm -hmm. and I think I'm trying. I'm quite sure. Seventy three. I'm not sure. We were at one point. We wrote a musical version of the Adding Machine. Um, the Elmer Rice. Yeah. Okay. Called Zero, and when we, but I can't remember if it was that or Johnny Manhattan, the show that oh, yes. we were talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and. Uh, but the, the problem with the Adding Machine musical was um, we would, people come, come in, to, producers, every producer under the sun came in here. And um, when we would sing the score, they'd say, oh my gosh, this is fabulous, this is fabulous. Then they'd read the book and they said, oh, we can't, we can't do this, we can't do this. Because the book was so down and so depressing and so awful. And the funny thing again, it is, it's like, I'm sort of like Fred Mertz when he said, all I ever learn is my pages. He never even read the whole script of I Love Lucy. You know, I knew how to write the music. I knew what Bob had, where it fit in the show and all that. And I, I guess I read the story, but right. it didn't really hit me what it was. And, and it's funny because years later when the Chicago company did The Adding Machine, and, and, and ours was much more... Uh, like a Broadway show music mm -hmm. set against this yeah. dark stuff. And when I went to see theirs, theirs was that kind of atonal. Oh, yes. When I saw it, I thought, at the end, I thought, oh my God, no wonder nobody wanted to put this on. This is the most horrifying thing I've ever seen. <laughs> it's, it's dark, and, it's dark. And then, like, just a little ironic twist was the Mrs. Zero was our sister Amnesia from Fort Lauderdale. <laughs> and Mr. Zero was the husband of our sister Amnesia from Chicago. Small <laughs> world, isn't it? Isn't it? Yeah. Yes. Nonsense. So, it's seeds yes. everywhere. So we really just kind of had to put it on the shelf, and, and, and then Bob had this idea of this original show called Johnny Manhattan about this guy who ran a nightclub. Okay. And it was that was in 1975. And Dan walked in today with a gift for us. It is a CD of Johnny Manhattan, but it looks like not from 1975. No, this is definitely not from 1975. When, when was no. the CD done? Or when was the production done? Just this past year. Um, I mean, uh, it's a year ago this September, but we did it back did, in Michigan. Did it take you all the way from 1975 to get to this this point, or were there productions that Johnny Mann had? Nothing. Yeah, we, did, we did this as, it was back when you could do these little 15 performance showcases, and we did it at a place called the ETC Theater mm -hmm. on 23rd and 5th Avenue. And... Um, as people, Jana Robbins was in it as oh. young. Beth Fowler was just starting out. She was in it. Um, Barry Pearl. Um, and, and originally, um, Bobby Drivers was going to direct it. Okay. And then Bobby got a show. And I have, have done other shows with Bob, worked with Bobby. And um, so 
but Bobby got another show, and we said, well, the theater set, we got these people. Um, there was a wonderful review actress named Jean Arnold mm -hmm. who played the, the, this old actress in it. And um, we thought, well, we're here. I said, I said, Bob, you know this show inside now. Why don't you direct it? And um, Arthur Faria choreographed it. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So we did it. And it was, everybody seemed to love it. But we didn't know what we were doing, and we didn't know how to move it or anything. So it just kind of faded into the distance. And um, then we started doing industrial shows, trade shows. And we had a bunch of those, which paid really well. Right, and we, right. It was the era of when you could oh, make yeah. a living doing these industrial yeah. shows. And you wrote, like, satire spoof material, I read? or you... No, we wrote all original material. Okay. But it was it was always about the products right. and what, what were some of the products that you had to write? For? I was very fortunate because so I've been told by other industrial writers because the first one we got was L'Oreal, oh, and then we got um, over the years we got Halston, Charles of the Ritz, um, these really high end companies, yeah, yeah, and they said you know we were so fortunate because they liked the classier material. And um, we would write songs all about whatever. And in fact, one of the funniest things is, in Nonsense, I, I had a lot of these songs over the years, and I thought, geez, these are really good. I should just dump these lyrics out and you know, write new lyrics to them. So the actual opening of Nonsense of the nonsense is habit forming that was you're in good company at Campbell's you're a star <laughs> which was for Campbell's the Campbell's soup yeah. company owned everything they owned get to chocolate they owned all this stuff and when it names all the nuns um, that we were naming all the products of Campbell's and then when if, if you listen to the show or listen to the CD, when it says, um, Sister Amnesia, a crucifix fell on her head, uh, her memory's gone, what a shame. Pum, ba, da, dum, 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 sister, blah, blah, blah. That pum, pum, ba, dum, pum, pum, was Franco American. <laughs> <laughs> It fits. I mean, it makes it sense. Yeah, because we, we were singing the whole thing. Yeah, and it was like we were singing plastic pickles and blah blah blah. Yeah. And Franco American. That is incredible. <laughs> okay, so we we love the, hearing about these industrials. So I have to ask you. So if like let's say uh, Campbell's Soup comes to you, do they say okay? You have to mention chicken noodle and you have to mention mm -mm, good, and then you can fill in the blanks from there. I mean, how did, how did exactly did that work? Pretty much, uh, uh, quite often, they would come with the theme of the show. Um, and, and like, the, the one that I can explain more than Campbell's is um, Charles of the Ritz, which owned Yves Saint Laurent and Jean Nate and Band de Soleil and, and Charles of the Ritz itself. Clothing line, right? Yeah. yeah. No, 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 no. All, all cosmetics. and oh, cosmetics. Yeah, and... Oh, okay. um, uh, Jean Nate was the drugstore kind of product for your face, you know, and bath oh, powder okay. and all that. Okay. And of course, Yves Saint, and it was Yves Saint Laurent, uh, the perfume. Oh, the perfume. The, okay. the, the old perfume division. Yeah, so like, um, 
when, when they would come to us, they would say, okay, um, our theme is going to be um, you're in good company or whatever, whatever it was going to be. So that was, that was a good start. And then I remember in one company, actually I think it, it might have been Halston, whatever it was, the product was um, Anjali perfume. And Anjali was competing with Charlie from Revlon. And, but, and Charlie was the one. So they decide, they're, they're trying to say to us, well, what we want to say is the biggest ain't the best, which also you'll see in nonsense. Yep. Um, and so we wrote this whole thing about how Anjali is the best perfume and it's, it's not the biggest. Um, and so they would, they would set you up and sometimes they would give you, um, as you say, <clears throat> pointers about the product. And I always thought it'd be great, you know, if we can get every single one in, yeah, in the yeah, song. Yeah. Um, and a lot of times it would be based on, on a show. I mean, we would have a show, maybe it was supposed to be a talk show. And you'd have hosts and you'd have singers in the talk show and that. And the, so then the, the people who were the um, clients, uh, let's say the representative of Anjali, would come on and it would be scripted, you know, and they would ask her, her questions about Anjali and stuff. And, and basically it was selling the new product right. or whatever the new sales pitch was. It, all the ones we ever did were the, the national sales meetings. Mm. And they were fantastic because you went to a great resort, you did the opening show, and then you could hang out during the week while they did all their breakouts. Yeah. And at the end, they would have a big Candids thing and we would do a song behind it. And, um, and, and they paid really well. Yeah. Yeah. And it was, it, it was terrific fun. And good practice too, I and mean, yeah, and, you know. And you know, when, um, you were asking me before we started if I ever set deadlines and uh, the great thing about those were there were definite deadlines. You had six weeks to write this, or whatever it was. And so, you know, you really got down to work and, and you did it. And they liked us and we were real easy to work with in that. And um, so, f for quite a while, we kept, we kept getting a lot of the, of, the industrial, of the industrial shows. And you also wrote incidental music, didn't you, for a Broadway show that starred Elizabeth Ashley and uh, F. Murray, F. Murray Abraham. It was uh, short-lived. It was, yes, it was terribly short-lived. But it was the first time I'd ever had my name on a Broadway poster yeah. in the front of the theater. And but Bobby Drivis directed it, and I, I knew Bobby. And uh, uh, Elizabeth Ashley starred, as you said, in F. Murray Abraham. Um, Bobby decided that this needed to have a whole score to go behind it. So it was like a movie with a soundtrack. It was called? Legend. 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 Yes. And I remember she was, it was a big old shoot 'em up show. It's a Western, right? Yeah, it was a Western. <laughs> and I, 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 I don't remember much about it. <laughs> I love that they wanted, they wanted music all the way through it, like a all, movie. That's all the way through it, yeah. And we had all the scene music, like, oh, there was a love scene. We had love music mm -hmm. and all that. And uh, so I, I, I wrote the whole thing, and they kept trying to make it work. And again, even to this day, if somebody asked me to read a script, I'm not very good at saying whether it's going to work or not. Thing, put it on the stage, and I'll yeah, right, right. but I do remember going to Delhi one day, 
during rehearsal. And to get some sandwiches, and there were a bunch of us, and the guy behind the counter picked up this whole turkey, and he said, legend? <laughs> so, but, um, but it was a, a great experience oh, yeah. for me. Oh, of course. And, uh, and, and just to be able to, to do that. Yeah. So then I have to ask between legend, when does this, this greeting card idea start to come the into play? The greeting card, it started probably about... 1980. Just a couple of years after Legend. Yeah, and when we when we were doing Legend, I mean, we were still doing industrial. So oh yeah, yeah, still yeah. paying the rent. Yeah, and um, so what happened was a Dominican brother friend of mine over at St. Vincent Ferrer's gave me a mannequin dressed as a Dominican nun as a joke when the nuns the nuns started to modernize their habits. So this was the very traditional nun. And she lived in my apartment, and everyone in the neighborhood knew about Sister Mary Mannequin. <laughs> and sometimes she would get asked to parties, and we would bring her to yes. parties. Yes, please. And uh, um, and I would move her around the house, uh-uh. and you know, like put her hand, put her in the kitchen with her hands in the sink, like Amazing. she's doing dishes and stuff. And um, so, and one time Super came up to do something, and and. And then I came in later, and he said, Danny, Danny, there's a saint, a saint in the kitchen. A saint in your kitchen helping that I couldn't say a saint in the kitchen. <laughs> so, just Sister Mary Mannequin. Yes, yes, doing just the doing, doing the dishes, right. Casual. So um, at the time, um, I was working on industrial, and a friend said, why don't we do a greeting card of her? This would be fun. And so we talked a little more about it, and we had a friend who had actually worked in some greeting card stores and stuff, and we were talking, and they said, well, you know, you're going to have to do more than one card, or nobody would be interested. Mm-hmm. And we realized the mannequin wouldn't make th- that many expressions. Mm-hmm. So I asked my friend Marilyn, who was a dental hygienist, <laughs> but a very funny lady that I knew, I said, do you want to be a nun in a greeting card? She said, sure. So we made these cards, we made 12 images, and in order to get the best deal, you had to print, let's see, it would have been, because we ended up with 24,000 cards, so what was it, like like 2,000 a piece, I guess, yeah. And when they got delivered to the guy, the photographer was the guy, he had a loft, when we got delivered, we thought, oh my God, what have we done? We're never going to get rid of all these. So we started putting them in. The, I had a station wagon, because when we used to do our Saxons, we toured the station wagon. We put them there. We started driving around the village, and we would sell these cards. And back then, remember there used to be a card store in every corner? Yeah, oh yeah. And, and people would buy up these cards like crazy. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.
Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. And what were like examples of the covers of them? Or what were the, you know, what would we have seen on, on them? They were all, they were all funny things. Yeah. The funniest one, the biggest seller was the sister flushing the toilet. And on the inside it said, holy shit, it's your birthday. <laughs> And right. they were, I get it. they yes. were, yeah, and uh, Silly, but, but, yeah. yeah, and um, you know, just borderline tasteless, but yeah. not exactly. Right. And uh, and then I'm I'm trying to think, and then there was one real sweet where she was looking up at heaven and says thank you, and um, yeah. uh, and and one where she had fallen down the stairs on a pair of roller skates that said you'll be on your feet in no time, <laughs> and then. Yeah. And we had one too where she was climbed up a telephone pole and she was hanging with her feet loose like this and you could see even the muscles in her arms that just said hang in there. Oh, and that's uh, funny. So they were working and fun. Yeah. So people would buy them like crazy. And then we heard there was a national stationery show at the Coliseum. And um, oh, so we yeah. called, yeah. And, oh no, it's been booked for years. Can't get in there. So they said, you know, if there's a cancellation or something, you might get something. But, um, you know, right now you can't get it. So we thought, all right. So then John, the guy who was the card guy, who knew what that was, would call every now and then. And one day he called. And they said, we have a cancellation today. If you want it, you can have it. And the booth was like four feet by eight feet. And... Back then, there was a time when the unions were charging a fortune, and I don't know whether, how much it was, but let's say it was 800 bucks. But so we said, okay, we're going to take the booth. But if you wanted lights, it was another 500. If you wanted a little rug put down, it was 200. So we couldn't have anything. So we got a big four bay piece of foam core, and we pasted the cards on them. And, and Marilyn appeared as the nun at the thing. In person, yes. In person, in person. And again, like, talk about right place, right time, right exact minute, and the stars shining on us, and we sold 38,000 cards in two days. Oh, my God. <laughs> and we got reps fighting over us, and somebody said we were on the fourth floor, and on the first floor was Hallmark, And when you went in, you would have thought you were in Macy's. Mm -hmm. I mean, the, the way they they've set up everything. And we went in one day, and we heard somebody saying, how come we're the people? And they said, oh, they're all upstairs on the fourth floor with that nun. And <laughs> which at that point, we realized that the nun um, was, the actual visual of the nun was the key to everything. Yeah. And... Um, And one a nun was shopping in there, and she came up and she said, I, I find this very insulting, and I, I, I think these cards are offensive, and I just, I don't know why you're doing this. And she said, you know, well, they're funny, and blah, blah, blah. And she said, well, I, I, think, I, I think you should give me a set for free just because I've been so insulted. <laughs> 
so they gave her a set. I love it. But um, uh, like I say, then for like two years, all we did was we sell these cards and we'd hire all our friends who were actors yeah. who'd come down to count the cards because we had we had reps all over the country mm. who would order. You know, they'd order for like ten stores at a time, mm -hmm. and at the time. We had made, we were looking for where, where we could make our little shot store, you know. Um, not a storefront, but where we could sell from. And Craig Jacobs, who's a real well-known Broadway stage manager, said, I have an office that I rent on 42nd Street where I just store my road boxes. And he said, if there's enough space, we can split the rent. The rent was $100 a month, so we paid 50 each, 50 bucks a month for this really very large office in the building which is now the Lyric Theater. Hey podcast listeners, are you looking for a place to rehearse in New York City that is clean, spacious, and most importantly affordable? Come check out Shetler Studios and Theaters, our wonderful host for these podcasts. Shetler is centrally located on West 54th Street between Broadway and 8th Avenue, right in the heart of the theater district. Right in the heart, you'll find music, dance, and acting studios, complemented by two black box theaters and six presentation venues. The professional facilities, inspired environment, and expert industry staff combined to provide the New York artist with an unparalleled studio experience. Visit their website at shetlerstudios.com That's S-H-E-T-L-E-R studios.com Shetler Studios and Theaters is our home for recording the legends of Broadway and we hope that you make it your artistic home too. That's Shetler, S-H-E-T-L-E-R studios.com. See you here. And then, then I started writing little skits for Marilyn to go out and peer at card stores mm -hmm. and hustle cards. And, and uh, I made up this story that there, these nuns had been poisoned by Vichyssoise soup and they were trying to raise money to bury the sisters. So she'd be out there and say, buy a card and bury sister. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, people thought it was really funny. And then at one point... I thought, well, this, this, maybe we could do something with this and really bring this character to life. And a neighbor who lived down the block, Steve Hayes, was a stand-up comic. And we got together and said, well, maybe we could put this stuff together. And, and we put together what turned out to be the cabaret of the nonsense story. And we had three nuns and a priest and a brother. And Steve was one of the, Steve was a priest. My friend John Hatchett, who was an actor, was the brother, and was Marilyn, and Katie Anderson, and Cindy, Cindy Benson. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, Steve had worked at the duplex before, and he knew some people. And uh, they said, well, we'll let you come down and try it. And we were supposed to be there four weekends. Mm -hmm. And I think we were there something like... 36 weeks, something, yeah, like, something that. like that. It was something like yeah. that. It just kept going and going. And it going. went on and on. In, in 2019, if someone is doing a show at the duplex, they simply post like one thing on Facebook and that's their marketing. How did you market without any social media? It was, oh God, it was so much easier. I would love to just erase all social media only because people, everybody looked in one or two places mm. to find something. Um, 
you, we, and also, we have, remember the snipers that put posters everywhere? Oh, yeah. We did that. And then, then after like probably two weekends, it was word of word mouth. Of mouth. Yeah. yeah. But anyway, uh, at the, we wanted to move it from the duplex. And, and, and we kept trying and trying, and people would say, the producers would say, no, it's just a review. And you know we can't we can't really do that. We actually had a second company of the Nuns and Story running in Boston, in a in a cabaret there, um, in a basement of a hotel. And uh, but then you know I mean nobody would take it, and they said because you can't just put it. And the other the other thing was when we in that show. It was like watching a Carol Burnett show or something. The, the characters had names, but they were different characters in each sketch mm. and in and, and songs and stuff. So um, you didn't know anything about them. Mm-hmm. And then um, a couple of producers were kind of interested, but they said, you know, it, it would have to be more than this. And then... Um, they said, people would say sometimes, we'd love to know more about the characters. And at that point, the producers decided that it would work better with the five, five nuns and rather than the mix. And um, they said Steve's material, which was really funny, but it was, it was edgy and it was, it was, some of it was pretty risque, not X-rated or anything like that, but the kind of thing that you just couldn't at that time, uh, you couldn't play in an uptown theater, and uh, so so they they changed a thing, and that was that was really kind of rough because Steve was really counting on it, and I I think to this day he thought I had something to do with engineering it, but I didn't. They just said this is this is the only way we would try this. Uh, can you give us an example of what made it edgy back then? Um, oh, like, like uh, one, the nuns are talking about one of the sisters that was pregnant. Oh, and, yeah. And oh, that's that's edgy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, did you see her when the wind blew her habit up? Oh, my, my, my. You know, that kind of thing. Oh. And, uh, you know, and it was... But, but never... Over the, you know, just really badly over the top. Right. There's another sketch where there where there was a dead nun and the priest came there at the funeral. The priest came in and say she looks so awful. They're going to make her up again, and so they tip her up in the casket, and make, make, making her up, you know, and um, yeah, and uh, um, it, but playing totally different characters, but just as an unexplained characters. Because you kind of, I'm so sorry to interrupt, but for our listeners, you know, you kind of forget that this is, you know, pre-Sister Act and pre-all of those shows. I mean, Nonsense really allowed you to have a sense of humor about all of this. So that you, you I mean, right. big a pioneer. serious, you know, world. Oh, absolutely. You know, fun at yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, spoof up a little bit. Yeah. yeah. I'm so sorry to interrupt. No, 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 please. Um, so that, at that time, I said, well, you know, I'd, I'd try. And uh, there was a producer involved, and George Rondo was a friend of his who was a stage manager who was trying to direct it. And, mm-hmm. and um, but then he gave up because it, it still wasn't there. Mm-hmm. And then I thought, well, I want to just try this one more time because I really feel like there's something here. And uh, in fact, my agent said, he says, you try it one more time, and then I want you to stop. 
<laughs> so, and he always tells that story. He said, yeah, I told Danny he should stop. But what happened was uh, I worked on it and got it into a shape. And one of the girls in the show, had heard, either she, I think she was friends of somebody at the Baldwin School, which was now the Calhoun School on 74th mm -hmm. Street. And um, she, they had a little 90-seat theater showcase mm -hmm. in there. It's a showcase theater that Equity approved. Mm -hmm. And so we decided we would put it on there. And we went and did a presentation um, as a little audition. And, uh, and there was, it was very funny because there was one joke in it that really crossed the line, but the audience always laughed. And that night, John Kander came for the audition piece because the girl playing Sister Leo was a real good friend of John's. Okay. So he came to check it out. And afterward, he said to me, this is the most absurd thing I have ever seen in my life. But five minutes into it, I believed every word of it. And then he said, the only thing that messed it up for me was that joke. Do, do you remember what that joke was by any chance? Uh-huh. Do you want to hear it? Yeah. Please. <laughs> Please. She said, she said to the Mother Superior, says, you know, the other day I had to go to Washington to the Office of Religious, and I got to the airport early, so I didn't know what to do. So uh, I spotted one of those weighing fortune machines, you know, so I went over and I put my quarter in, and the ticket came out. It says you are on your way 150 pounds, and you're about to pass gas. Just I thought, how ridiculous. But I'm walking away from the machine, and I thought, oh, my goodness. I went back to that machine. I put in another quarter, and the ticket came out, and it said, you are a nun. You weigh 150 pounds, and you're about to be She said, well, now I knew the machine was crazy. So I'm walking down the hall. This closet door opens, and this hand reaches out and pulls me in the closet, and the man ravishes me. Well, I had to go back to that machine. So I went back and I put in another quarter and the ticket came out and it said, you are a nun, you weigh 150 pounds, and now that you farted and fucked around, you missed your flight. <laughs> funny joke. You see, yes, it's a very funny joke. Oh my goodness. Yes, it's, it, it's a very... It's, <laughs> so, that, so that one went away. Yeah, that one went so over that, perhaps the rest of the evening. Yes, that, that, that went away. Oh, goodness. The, um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, they didn't get mind the nun getting stoned on Rush or anything else, but that joke was, that joke was it. But anyway, the audiences were coming there loving the show. And every producer that we brought said, it's not going to work. Mm -hmm. they, they, they weren't interested. And so the stage manager at the time said, why didn't you produce it yourself? I said, I have no idea about producing a show. He said, well, you don't really have to know. He said, you can, um, if you get a really good general manager, they'll just tell you everything. Yeah. And at the time, Roger Gindy was a company manager for Gatchel and Neufeld, uh, which was a big company management company. And he was a company managing Starlight Express. But he was interested in branching out. And they told him that if he wanted to general manage nonsense, he could do that. And 
they would let him use still their offices and everything. I mean, they were extremely generous to us all. Then we just, we opened up the Cherry Lane Theater in 1985. And um, when we got there, we thought, oh, this is the perfect place, charming little theater, beautiful street and all mm -hmm. that. And I had never realized, and we got, we got nice reviews. Not like, this is fun, this is enjoyable. Not like, this is the funniest thing on earth, jump from your seat immediately. Yeah. So, I mean, we were, we were struggling, and I had no idea at the time how much walk-up business affects your theater business. I mean, I thought at the time, our tickets were $25, and the movie was probably five, you know? And I thought I could see somebody, you know, just walking into a movie, yeah. but not, not just walking up and say, oh, let's spend yeah. 50 bucks here and yeah. go see a show. Mm -hmm. So uh, at Cherry Lane, there's no walk-up business and no street traffic. Well, you're at off all. of the, the main yeah, drag. Yeah. And for our listeners, it's an it's almost it's a cul-de-sac. I mean, almost. it looks like where you shoot a movie. It's this beautiful little yeah. L-shaped yeah. street that I'm sure it's been in movies before, but, but it's off yeah. the beaten path. It's a path residential little to neighborhood. Totally yeah. off the beaten path. Yeah. And, and in fact, a couple of times I'd even had trouble finding yes. it. Yeah. Because the in the village how the streets go all yes. skewed. Yeah. And they used to tell us at the box office for everybody calling to buy a ticket, there was somebody calling saying, we can't find it. And uh, so we were struggling. Our, our weekly nut was $12,000, yeah. and we were making like nine and so 10. Yeah. And the people were saying, you've got you to gotta close it. You've got to close it. And, and I said, but listen to the audiences. They were loving it. And people would come in and say, oh, we saw so-and-so on Broadway, and this is way better than this. Yeah. Um, so then, when, when we're just thinking, we, oh, my God, we got to fight for this, we get told by the Cherry Lane people that we've, we're going to get kicked out. And they said, we feel terrible about this. We know how you're struggling. But we've got an offer from the Light Opera of Manhattan to take a two-year lease and they said, we just can't afford not to do it. So we thought, oh my God, here we are, they're kicking us while we're down. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. And all that money that you raised. Oh yeah. You know, I mean, watching that happen every week is frightening. Yeah, and so then, again, with these little stars shining on me, Roger overhears at Gatchel and Neufeld that Circle Rep in Sheridan Square is in trouble. And they want to cancel the rest of their season and rent the theater out. And so we borrowed $20,000 to move to Circle Rep. And I think the first night we did like $2,500 in walk-up business. Oh, wow. And that's what saved the show. It was all about that walk-up business. Yeah. And people call me all the time because, oh, you know the secret how to make these things work, you know. And... The things like that. I mean, it's like you're walking down the street and the brick falls three right. foot, you know, foot in front of you. Right. And, and that's really what turned it into a hit. Was the location shift? A absolutely. Wow. If we had stayed there, I think we would have died. Oh, my goodness. Um, and then it went on to run for like... Ten years in New yeah, York, yeah. Over 3,600 performances. Yeah, and then in, within the first year, they opened a company in Philadelphia... And then they opened one in Boston. Philadelphia ran 10 years. 
Boston ran nine years. And who's, uh, forgive me, for uh, who's they? Uh, would it be like a, a, a theater producer? Yeah. would say, hey, all, we want to we buy this yeah, all show. Yeah, independent producers. And Felton Smith, the choreographer at the time, and I would go and put them together. And you would have the, you obviously had the right to direct them and, 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 and cast them and everything, or was it? I don't know whether they had the right, but they gave it to me. Okay, all right. <laughs> I didn't know if they were, it was tied in with it. They, the, let, me, the, with they the let me do it. Yeah, good. And, um, um, so you know that's that's how it, how it, how it worked, and then it just took off, and and then um, probably I guess it was eight years later was when um, we did the Nonsense Two, right. the sequel. We opened the second one in Minneapolis. And was all the same character? All the same characters? Were all the same in? characters in Nonsense. Because everybody knew those characters. So yeah, well. in Nonsense Two, they were the same characters. Mm-hmm. And had I known that they were going to play all the time, I probably would have altered some stuff. But I thought, well, the formula worked. Let's just do the formula. Absolutely. And um, so now it's like some of the, not all the songs, but some of the songs you could actually interchange. Mm-hmm. And um, But it was eight years apart. Yeah. And I think it's like with I Love Lucy, if they'd known people were going to watch them all, they would have been careful to keep <laughs> Ethel, Ethel Mertz's middle name the same, you yeah. know. And, uh, but it's, b- we opened that, and um, it, it again, it, it booked like crazy. And I think we had like 100 productions in a week. And because all the theaters had done this, and so started booking it. Yeah, because it did so well. When yeah, the original. and we played it at the Chanhassen Theater in uh, Minneapolis. The old dinner theater, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. great theater. And that theater at the time had three theaters going all the time. Yep. And the theater we were in, so we ran a year and a half in that theater, and and they said, you know, if you ever have another another one, we're the place to come. So about two years after that. It was like we could do do something else. You know, people were asking for more, and that was Sister Amnesia's Jamboree. The and but with the, then I thought, okay, let's change this up a little bit, and we changed it so that um, we didn't we didn't have Mother Superior there. So I thought Mother Superior's not going to let Sister Hubert go because Sister Hubert's the one who's always trying to get her job. So we'll have new character. We have a Father Virgil, so we have a male voice, and we would have Sister Wilhelm, the nurse. And so that was that cast. And producers were always saying, only five people, only five, no more than five. So we went there with with Jamboree, and um, that was the spookiest one to write because I thought it was going great until we started doing run-throughs, and then there were saw things that didn't work and didn't work, and I thought, oh my God, oh my God, what's happening? But it was amazing because I would be, like, I would wake up in the night and think, wait a minute, that's it, you know? Th- these, these three things need to be taken out, and if this is put over here, this will work. And it was like in the nick of time, right. it worked. It so that ran, and then Chan Hassan became the dream of all time because, it, I mean, it was every writer would kill to go. They, would, they, they wouldn't even read the scripts. Just, they would just they, say, they just here's the key, you know. And we had four weeks rehearsal, four weeks of previews, 
and then we'd usually run at least a year. And we did that all the way up. So in totality, how many sequels are there in this in this nonsense story? There's six real ones. Six real ones. Yeah, seven, seven full shows. Mm-hmm. Then um, the guys always wanted to do it, and, they, and I thought I, I was worried about it because I thought people might be offended. Mm-hmm. And then they, were, they did it in Brazil. With men... Not as priests, but in the nuns. Yeah, yes, all playing nuns, but playing it not like a drag show, but like it eventually we came up with Mrs. Doubtfire enters the convent because it was the idea that these comic actors would convince you that they were these five nuns. And they did it in Brazil. The Brazilian company came here for three weeks to do it and doing it in Portuguese. And friends of ours had come to see it, and they said, oh, my God, you got to do it. you got to do it. And so I thought, well, if we do it, and we're in control of it, and we can make sure that it's not a drag show, um, we'll do it. And that was maybe at 98 or something like that, and we opened at the uh, 47th Street Theater. And and for the days, the New York Times didn't come out, and the ad agency said, well, you know, sometimes if the review is bad, they'll hold it back till the word of mouth goes a little bit if they're being kind. Mm-hmm. And we thought, oh, my God. Yeah. And then the review came out, and it was fabulous. Oh and so that cemented nonsense, amen. And people started doing it. They do it all over. We had Greg Luganis as Sister Robert Ann in, in one of the shows. Artie Johnson played... Um, Mother Superior in Michigan, and we had a we had a sister amnesia who was like six foot seven, and the the sister Leo was little, PJ Terranova like Harvey, yeah. and I remember at one time when they moved sister amnesia across like that, and Artie's there looking up like this, and and just turned to PJ and to sister Leo and said, "What a waste of height." <laughs> For some of our listeners, uh, would you tell us some of the big women who have come through these habits? Uh, you have Phyllis Diller. Who else is? But it's it's been amazing. I think there were thirty eight um, so far. We've had Phyllis. We had Alice Ghostly, Pat Carroll, Rue McClanahan, uh, Vicki Lawrence, um, Mary Jo Catlett, um, yeah, uh, Edie Adams. Um, I'm trying to get down with Pudgy, the comedian Pudgy, who used oh, to work yes. with yes. Pudgy. Um, oh, Lord, let's see who else. Uh, um, Marsha Lewis, Kay Ballard, J.P. Morgan. Um, uh, oh, my, there, there's so many of I them. Mean, or do you ever get to a point where you pinch yourself going, oh, my God, I can't believe this person is in something I wrote? I, I can't believe any of it. In our last few minutes together, where is the TV series at? The TV series uh, we decided to do um, with all these wonderful oh. stars like Beth, Beth Level and Chris Sieber and Scott Willis and Karen Ziemba and June Gable and Mary Stout and um, Leroy Reeves. And Leroy Reeves. Our friend of yes, the pod, yes. Yes. And, uh, um, and I know I'm forgetting people, um, but we, we decided we were going to really do it. And we did the TV thing 
it came out really, really well. Mm -hmm. Got a TV agent, every single person its workplace has been sent to now say, this is a fantastic pilot, but we don't think it's for our audience. Mm -hmm. And the head of Hulu called the agent and said, this is a no-brainer for the right place, but we're looking for edgy right now. Sure. And this is what we've gotten. And it's like, as one of the agents said, he said, it's a lot easier to say no than say yes. Because mm -hmm. once you say yes, you're on the line. Committed, yeah. And we spent, I think we spent $250,000, but the people at, at, who had seen it at CBS said, it looks like you spent about $2 million. Mm -hmm. And we did it in a vacant monastery in Union City, New Jersey. And, um, I mean, the, the quality of it, is amazing. I mean, I just look at it and think, man, people say that this is shot better than so many shows, and 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 really funny. We love it, and uh, we do indeed. It's on YouTube. It's and on we've YouTube. Talked about yes. it on the podcast before. We have mentioned yeah. it before. Yeah. And we're still, I mean, we're still hustling it. You know, trying to to get it going. Great. In addition to the television series, is there another edition of Nonsense in the Works? No. <laughs> Are you closing that, that book? When I did Nunset Boulevard, I said, that's it. Okay. Because for several reasons. Chanhassen now is down to one theater, so they don't have the experimental theater. A lot of the theaters that we were guaranteed we'd always get shows have closed. Um, the business is so different that um, I feel like that, you know, it's, it's just too hard. And I've got seven that go all the time, and it's like, Nice bookends. Yeah. They went to Hollywood, and you know that's a show where they think they're going to be at the Hollywood Bowl, and they're in a bowling alley. <laughs> and they decide they come back home that's to right. teach school. And Nunset Boulevard is my favorite oh, one that's now. That's your favorite. Yeah, right now. Anyway, oh although most people say the first one, but I said you know the first one is the zaniest one, but the Nunset Boulevard is pretty cool. Yeah. And. Uh, but I think that's why we decided, well, let's try a TV series. Let's go in a, in a different direction. And then, you know, and then we got the Johnny Manhattan thing that came out, yeah. of, out of nowhere. Um, so now we're kind of hustling that show. Um, and, uh, it, and, of course, it's, t it's totally different. But it's about this club owner who uh, has invited all his friends to, for, to a private party to tell him he's closing the club. And if you want more information about Johnny Manhattan the Musical, you can go to www.johnnymanhattanthemusical.com. And there's, you said there's clips on there. And One more time. Yeah. This is www So we're going to tell our listeners to check it out. And on behalf of all of our listeners and ourselves, thank you so, so much for providing us so many years of entertainment. This podcast is included in that. Yes. <laughs> this was wonderful. This, I enjoyed it so much. Anytime. You Good. guys are great fun. Oh, thanks for joining us. <laughs> Dan. Till next time. Bye, everybody. Today's episode was recorded at Shetler Studios on 244 West 54th Street. Visit Shetler Studios to book your room today, and you could be as cool as us. That's S-H-E-T-L-E-R studios.com. And a big thanks to our sound editor, Daniel Schwartzberg, and social media manager, Bethany Ann Selecki. And 
friends, don't forget, we want more folks to hear these incredible stories, and that's where you guys can come in and help us out. Yes, in order for people to find out about us, we need lots of ratings on iTunes. The more ratings, the more they'll come up in searches. So head on over to iTunes, search for Behind the Curtain Broadway's Living Legends, click on our logo, click on ratings and reviews, then write a review and leave us five stars and make us feel as special as Eliza Doolittle on Eliza Doolittle Day. Or you can leave us one star and make us feel as bad as Annie did in that weird production in Boston where Annie dreamed about being adopted and then ended the show back in the orphanage. True story, Rob was there. (laughs) I saw it. So head on over to iTunes and make us feel even more special than we already do. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.